hello um, welcome to my Australia version of Facebook Live. Um, I'm just uh, getting the camera into position. Uh, let's see. Okay, no, that doesn't work. You know, I'm not being very professional right now. I apologize. I am not in um, my Peter Rollins. Uh, emergent industrial complex with my very high-tech equipment, my $5 tripod and um, my uh, carefully chosen background. Uh, it's actually very early here. It's, it must be like 5 o'clock in the morning. Um, and actually the family that I'm staying with, my friends, the Gores, they're all still fast asleep upstairs. So I have to be a little bit quiet. Um, I'll just hold the phone. You know what I might do actually? I might uh, delete this and then start again. What do you think? Do you think I should pretend to be professional and then nobody sees all of this kind of crap stuff? Or should I just own my messiness? We've got, oh, we've got quite a few people listening in. I'll just own my messiness. I'm sure it's totally fine. Um, anyway, uh, first of all, um, I've been having a great time in Australia. Uh, there's Justin, the first commentator, with a very profound comment, which is first commentator. Very good. I am having a great time in Australia. I, I come here every year. Um, I usually uh, you know, do lots of things in Sydney, and then I go to other places like uh, been in Newcastle, Melbourne, Tasmania. I've even been to Perth. Um, I think that's it. I'm not sure. Uh, so it's been fantastic. was in Melbourne for a flying visit the other night. Um, and then did an event uh, about the absurd uh, yesterday, which I was really excited in. This is a subject that I'm really keen to explore, uh, Christianity and its relationship to the absurd, to you know, punk and data and um, all of that. I've talked about that in previous Facebook Lives, I think. And then um, tonight I'm doing a thing called the Whiskey Circle, and then the weekend I'll be doing my regular pints and parables and a day of training. But anyway, in Melbourne, somebody got me a present. It's Father's Day out here. It was Father's Day on Sunday. And um, I don't know if you saw this on my Instagram, but uh, somebody bought me this mug, which says, because I think that's back to front, it says, the world's most okay dad. You're definitely in the top 50%. I've met better, but I've also seen worse. You're all right. Which is a quote from uh, one of my Rob Bell podcasts where I was talking about a Father's Day mug that said exactly this um, and that I would buy one if it existed. So um, thank you, Trey, for, uh, for doing that for me. That is a tie, a close tie for my Super Bean, Hyper Bean, Ground of Bean uh, t-shirt. Uh, I'm getting some very exciting presents. And of course, some people have been very generous and been buying me gin. So that, that always goes down well. So thank you everybody for the, the amazing gifts. Um, let's see if anybody's actually saying anything. It's 5 a.m. and you're thinking about original sin. Yes, Devin, it is crazy. I woke up at like three because my body clock is all over the place because I travel a fair amount. Like just a couple of weeks ago, I was in uh, Holland, uh, in the UK as well, in Ireland. And then I was in LA and now I'm in Australia, New Zealand. So what I do is... When I'm sleepy, I just sleep. And when I'm not tired, I wake up. So there's no point in me trying to fix my body 
to whatever time I'm in because I'm only going to be there for a week. So yeah, the last few days I've been waking up bright and early. And the reason why I'm thinking about Original Sin <laughs> is because uh, I saw something on Twitter um, from somebody, you know, again, doing the, the usual thing within contemporary Christianity, which is saying, you know, Original Sin's a terrible thing. Oh, it's awful. It's bad. Um, you know, original Christians never believed in it. Uh, Hebrew people don't believe in it. <clears throat> you know, it's really about original blessing. You know, there's a there's a, there's an original harmony and peace and whatever at the core of the universe. And we need to get rid of this doctrine. And it's funny because actually among the continental philosophers of religion who uh, don't have any interest in Christianity or anything like that, uh, many of them find, you know, great interest in this idea of original sin. So I thought, oh, actually, you know what? This gets to the core of the difference between liberal progressive Christianity and radical theology. And uh, it was also in my mind because the question came up yesterday at my forum um, on uh, Christianity and the absurd. So in a nutshell, um, I, I, I just want to kind of like uh, kind of try to parse the differences. A lot of my friends are progressives and liberal Christians. When I moved to America, that was the case anyway. Um, and I speak in a lot of those kind of circles. So I've got a lot of respect for that. But uh, yeah, let's let's get into the meaty issue. What's the difference? Um, so it, you'll, some of you will know this if you've been following my work for a while. But I mean, I, I work with the creation story uh, that is found you know, within the existential and psychoanalytic traditions. And, uh, you know, for Freud, he he argued uh, you know, one of his fundamental insights, really, was that the birth into consciousness um, always involves suffering. In fact, Carl Jung said that very thing. He said, like, there is no birth into consciousness without suffering. There is no birth into selfhood without frustration, without loss, without a lack. Now, the reason for that is when we're born and we're a little baby body, we just have all of these experiences, like explosions, which are you know feelings of hunger and thirst, and coldness and pain. But there's no real centre to all of that. There's no inside and outside. There's no subject and object. The subject and object distinction that we experience, that is that is um, implicit in every conversation we have, where there is an I, and there is a not I. So everything we do as human beings implies a subject-object distinction. But the infant in the earliest days is in a sense pre-subject and object, pre-inside and outside. There is just a world of experience, uh, an oceanic experience of oneness. There is no self to talk about. Um, and then at a very, very early stage, the infant experiences what's called differentiation, where they experience a separation from, you know, from the world. Now, this is often experienced, first of all, by simply a separation from the breast of the mother. Um, that, that's, that's the kind of earliest experience of, like, losing something. And the subject begins to create a distinction between what they have and what they don't have. Um, the, a distinction between who they are and what they aren't. Uh, you know, we can call this the weaning process as well, you know, whenever someone is weaned off uh, the mother. Uh, and something terrible happens if this weaning process doesn't occur. 
uh, you become Irish, right? It's the old Irish problem, the Irish curse. We're so close to our mothers. You know, we, we don't move out. I've said it before, but that's the old joke about Jesus being Irish, you know, because he lived with his mum till he was 30. Uh, and she thought he was God, right? So psychoanalytically, actually, it's called psychosis. Psychosis is uh, the cluster of symptoms that arises because this separation has in some way, you know, not gone according to plan. And it's totally fine, you know, like a lot of my friends have psychotic um, symptoms and it's just something you kind of like live with. It's not a bad thing at all. Some people have neurotic symptoms, some perverse symptoms. Psychotic symptoms are uh, senses in which you're not sure when your ego starts and stops. You have out of body experiences. You feel fluid. You might, um, you might be looking at something and then you suddenly feel that you're not in your body, that you're in the thing you're looking at. Um, or you might find that your, your, your ego is fragmented into different parts. You know, these are psychotic symptoms that, that show that the, the ego, the sense of consciousness, the sense of self has, in a sense, very fluid boundaries. Anyway, that's a conversation for another time. But the point is, um, at this earliest experience of childhood is an experience of, oh my goodness, I am me and there's lots of things that aren't me and I am separate from the world. Because at, at the very earliest experience of the infant, there is no baby and mother. They are one. And for the mother as well, they can experience that as a sense of which, like, there's a sense in which you cannot speak of one without the other. Um, or whoever the primary caregiver is, you know, it's often the mother, but it doesn't have to be. But just whoever this primary caregiver is, there's a, there's a type of unity. Um, and, and the child experiences frustration as they experience the loss of this. They experience that they have lost an oceanic oneness, uh, um, a, a pre-subject and object reality. That because by definition, to be a subject is to experience yourself as distant from others. Now, it gets even more interesting than that. Not only do you feel yourself to be different from other people and other things, you experience a difference within yourself. You, something I talked about a few, um, I think it's a couple of weeks ago, that we all have double lives. We experience the life that we live and the life that we would like to live. And we all experience the person we are and the person we would like to be. And those two are never quite one. We live in the space between those. So to be a subject is to experience a distance between me and everybody else, and a distance between what I have and what I would like to have and a distance between who I am and who I would like to be. Uh, that's kind of part of being human, this sense of distance, this sense of lack. Um, now then, if that is the case, if that is true, um, then what we do is we fantasize something that will fill the lack, something that will bring us back to that pre-subject-object distinction. And this, can, this is what Schopenhauer talks about uh, when he talks about the feeling of absolute dependence, you know, the feeling that the religious feeling is actually the feeling of bringing us back to that harmony and that oneness. And this is kind of liberal Christianity at its core. The, the truth, according to liberal and progressive Christianity, is that beneath of all of the antagonisms of life, the experience of lack and unknowing, there is an harmony, um, there is a fullness that we can connect to. 
you know, if we meditate or or go into mindfulness or, you know, do certain spiritual practices, we can, in a sense, return to this, this oneness that we have lost. But according to kind of existential and psychoanalytic thinking, that's a fantasy that we that is actually very damaging it's a fantasy that 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 fuels society everyone's saying you can be whole and complete and have harmony you know if you have enough money if you have enough fame if you have the right technology if you do the right prayers if you do the right um you know spiritual practices right there's this desire in all of us to get rid of this sense of loss this sense of frustration lacan actually put it like this he said every infant has an experience that is like somebody coming up to you with a gun and saying your money or your life. Because whenever someone comes up to you and says your money or your life, you've got a choice. You either give your money and save your life, right? But you've lost something valuable. I mean, if you have to give away all your money, you've definitely lost something of great value. Or you refuse, you say, I'm not giving up my money and therefore you lose your life, right? Well, for Lacan, the infant has a choice either lose the oneness the sense of pre-subject and object right lose that and gain their life gain subjectivity gain a real sense of self or a refusal to do that which means that in a sense one keeps one's money one which is symbolic of one's pleasure and desire one keeps that but they in a sense lose themselves and i say that's psychosis the psychotic is the one who especially in a psychotic break where you, where you lose yourself, you know, you, you could come under the control of voices in your head that tell you, you know, the FBI are after you, you cannot, you can't, and I have a friend who had a psychotic break and she couldn't eat f food of a certain colour because she thought it was poisoned, she like, you know, she was overrun by voices, she was overtaken um, by, you know, the, this, this other that was in herself. <clears throat> so, you know, we have this early experience, your money or your life. And to become a human, to become a subject, you fall. This is the fall. You fall into subjectivity. You fall into subjecthood. You fall into humanity. So it's a fall that gives you something. It's a loss that gives you yourself. You lose something and it gives you yourself. Now, the word sin traditionally means lack, right? Uh, and we often in religion, in religious circles, sin is a moral category. It's like you chew gum and you go out with girls who do, um, or you, you know you swear, or you know all of this stuff that sin is a moral category. But actually, you know, at a deep level, sin is what's called an ontological category. It's a it's a statement about our being. An original sin is an ontological statement that says at the core of being human is a lack. This is what Jean-Paul Sartre meant when he wrote Being and Nothingness, where he said being is infused with nothingness. To be human is to experience a nothingness or a lack at the core of your being. And it's an original lack because it's part of what it means to be human. And this original lack causes us to fantasize in what uh, Matthew Fox calls an original blessing. Now, he doesn't think it's a fantasy. He thinks it's a reality. But from a psychoanalytic perspective, human beings fa fantasize an original blessing that exists before this fall into subjectivity. But there actually isn't a pre-fall because the subject is created by the lack. So there isn't a subject that is before the lack, 
the subject is created by the lack. Right? That's that's the key moment. That's very very subtle. But you know, the the person who believes in a pre-existing harmony is saying that there is a subject that exists before the fall, a subject that exists before the lack. But but from an existential or psychoanalytic perspective, it's no no no. The subject is created by the lack. That's why Jung says consciousness never comes into being except through suffering. There is a primordial suffering that, that, that gives us to ourselves. Right? And that's kind of like what radical theology is saying. So according to liberal Christianity, the truth of Christianity is an original wholeness and oneness with the world. But according to radical theology, the truth of Christianity is found in, in the opposite. It's found in there is a, a lack um, that is core and key to humanity that we cannot get rid of. Now that sounds very depressing, but the radical theology says, no, it's more depressing than the other thing. The fantasy of original blessing destroys us. I live in LA, it's everywhere. There is this constant uh, superego injunction that says you should be happy, whole and complete. In the Bible it's called the devil, actually the serpent. The serpent is the one in the Bible who says, if you eat this fruit, you will be like gods. And what that means is to be like a god is to be without the lack, to be whole and complete. Because traditionally the definition of God is the one who lacks the lack. So this serpentine voice says, you eat this piece of fruit and you will be whole. You will be complete. You will have everything, right? That's what Freud called superego. That, that voice that says, you have the money, you have the fame, you go out with the right person and then you will be whole and complete. And we think that that voice is our friend. That voice is our enemy. That voice is a serpent that needs to be crushed. We need to be freed from the tyranny of that voice of original blessing, of some original perfection, some oceanic oneness that we can grasp. What we instead need to do is uh, take the frustrations and the difficulties that are part of life and somehow learn to enjoy them, learn to find energy from them, learn to kind of be excited by the fact that we are incomplete. Find potential in that, find, find kind of freedom in that, to rob the lack of its sting. In, in theological terms, it would be called robbing death of its sting. You don't get rid of the lack, you rob it of its pain and you turn it into something positive. Um, and I'm writing a book on this at the moment and I, I, you know, I don't know when it's going to be finished, but I'm really enjoying the, the few moments that I get to write it. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, that might be clear as muck. Um, but just, just to again say like that what puts psychoanalysis, existentialism, radical theology uh, in opposition to forms of liberalism and progressive Christianity is, is this idea that, that, that there, is, there is this absolute dependence that we can have, this absolute oneness pre-subject and object. Now, of course, you can't have these moments. There are moments in our lives when we as subjects begin to dissipate. And they can be quite wonderful experiences and they can be quite terrifying experiences. Talk to psychotics. Psychotics have those experiences. Um, but they, it's where we disappear. You know, it's where we kind of disappear. The more that you are a subject, the more you experience this kind of lack. And in radical theology, the idea is how do we come to terms with that lack rather than get away with it? So this is why I'm a defender of original sin, but you've got to hear it right is that original sin for me is an ontological term 
it's not some mystical, weird, religious idea of morality. It's simply saying that there is nothingness at the core of being. Um, the existentialists were the ones who actually understood original sin best. People like Jean-Paul Sartre. They basically were writing about how original sin is part of what it means to be human. Now, there is an ontic element to that. So there's an ontological element, which is at the core of us, there is a lack. Right? There's an ontic form. Ontic means beings, things. So whenever you say there's an ontic dimension, what we do is we take this original sense of lack and we place it onto objects. Uh, so the, the experience of lack is anxiety. So psychoanalytically, anxiety is the experience of this fear of nothingness that's in our being. Uh, then we place it on something. So we might be afraid, afraid of mice or moths or something like that. That's putting our anxiety, our ontological nothingness onto an object and saying that object is the problem. Or we do this when we say that if I have enough money or fame, then I'll be happy. We're taking the lack that we feel inside us and we're putting it onto an object and we're saying that object will take away the lack. Um, that object will make us whole and complete. So that's the ontic dimension of sin, is when we think we can be whole and complete through the pursuit of something. Freud called this the death drive. Right? Death drive is whenever we want something so badly that we will destroy ourselves to get it. We'll destroy others because we think they have it. We will go into wars and conflicts. Um, we'll, so, so much human evil comes from this idea that I am lacking and if only I have this thing, then I'll be complete. Um, uh, or somebody else has stolen that thing from us. This is obviously most clear in fascism where the figure of the Jew is the one who has the money and the power and the influence. They have the thing and we need to destroy them and take it back. Right? So that's the ontic. And then, so the, and then the moral dimension of sin is... Uh, so there's the ontological, at the core of our being is lack. There is an ontic dimension. We put that lack onto something that we think will fix the lack. And then the moral dimension is we will do anything to get it. We'll destroy ourselves, our environment, our neighbor. We will get into wars and conflicts and violence. So that's the three, three elements of this. And uh, um, that's why, in a sense, I'm kind of concerned with forms of progressivism. Uh, which which try and say there's harmony. Oh, by the way, the scientific version of this is um, is quantum mechanics. You know, if if, if if psychoanalysis, if theology says there is a, a lack at the core of our being, and, and psychoanalysis says, yes, there is a lack at the core of our subjectivity, and existentialism says there is a lack at the core of society, and um, Hegel and German idealism says that there is a lack hard-baked into reality itself, Quantum mechanics says there is antagonism and lack built into the core of the physical universe. In other words, there is unknowing and um, uh, uh, antagonism in, in how things operate at a quantum level, right? Uh, so, the, you know, so again, quantum mechanics fits quite neatly with, with existentialism and psychoanalysis, but even though it's a different discipline. Oh, and in the arts, you've got dataism. In music, you've got punk. Um, you know, the, you, you've, got, you've got this in various ways, in different forms. So radical theology has connections with kind of the scientific world of quantum mechanics and the musical world of punk and the political world of Occupy Wall Street. Um, you know, the, the, these are all examples of expressing an antagonism at the core of reality itself. Okay, I, I don't know if that's clear, but remember it's four o'clock in the morning for me. 
Let's see what anybody's saying. Uh, da -da -da. Perfection is imperfection, says Aaron. And yeah, that's kind of what, the, that's what I'm saying. And since he perfectly said that when you can embrace the fact that I'm not okay and you're not okay, that's okay. You know, that's, that's kind of this is like the, the answer isn't in getting rid of the, the imperfection, but in one sense, changing how we interact with that imperfection, changing how we feel. So instead of guilt, which is guilt is the experience of lack, I'm lacking character, I'm lacking something, we're able to turn that into potentiality, uh, a place to grow, a place to change. It becomes something positive. It's robbed of its sting. Uh, let's see. Uh, Matthew um, says, what about John Dominic Crossan's notion that sets the garden account in the context of fertile crescent culture where the snake simply is the reminder that immorality was never on the table? Okay, um, I have not read much John Dominic Crossan. I've read a little bit and I've enjoyed him, but he's doing something very, probably very similar, but, uh, but in a very di different discipline. You know, he's like doing, um, you know, more kind of biblical, historical Jesus stuff. Um, and I'm in the tradition of kind of philosophy and kind of, uh, you know, contemporary co continental philosophy. So although I think actually there's a way of reading people like John Dominic Crossan or Marcus Borg or people like that um, in, in ways that fit with this, uh, they're, they're doing a very different discipline. Um, my, the only kind of historical Jesus kind of, or, or historic, you know, biblical criticism stuff that I really like is there's a book called uh, Christ and the End of Meaning by um, Paul Hessert, and I, 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 I think he's the closest to me. But yeah, I could imagine, like I'm giving a psychoanalytic reading of the Garden of Eden, and John Dominic Crossan wouldn't be doing that at all. Um, I say that doesn't mean he would disagree; he just wouldn't be doing it. Like for me, the Garden of Eden is an eatable story, right? Completely eatable. So it's um, the eatable story, as most of you know, is a guy wants to sleep with his mum. He doesn't know it's his mum, but he wants to sleep with his mum. His dad gets in the way, so he kills his dad, sleeps with his mum, and it's a curse. It's a disaster. Well, you know, the Garden of Eden has a similar structure. Uh, Adam and Eve want this piece of fruit. Because, because the whole thing about the eatable thing is sleeping with the mother is getting back to the pre-subject object, right? That's getting back to the oceanic oneness. You've, you've separated from your mother. You want to get back to the time before that separation. And symbolically in the Oedipus story, the father is the prohibition that says you can't go back. You can't go back to that. So he breaks it, gets back. So th this is the story against the New Age thing, fulfill your dreams. You know, I say, oh, fulfill your dreams, great. So that you can understand the abject horror of them. So you can understand they don't work, right? That's what the Oedipus story is about. It's about the curse of fulfilling your dreams, which in philosophy is called melancholia. Whenever you get what you want and you realize... It's really depressing, right? Melancholia is the is the experience of getting everything you want, and that's not heaven. That's hell. I saw a, a, a Twilight Zone once where a guy dies, a murderer, and he thinks he's in heaven and he gets everything he wants all the time, and of course he realizes eventually that actually he's in hell. So, um, the uh, story of Adam and Eve is an eatable story. We want the piece of fruit. That will bring wholeness and oneness. You eat this, you will be like gods, you know, all of that. There is a prohibition that says you can't, you can't do that. Adam and Eve break the prohibition. They eat the piece of fruit and disaster results. So um, I, I actually think that's 
for me that's like the strongest reading of the of the Garden of Eden. Um, but and and it's the basis of my book, The Divine Magician. Although I don't I don't talk about it in that term because I only came to that after writing the book. It took me to write the book to understand that that this is a this is a good way of reading um, the Garden of Eden. But it's in there implicitly. Uh, da, da, da. Um, Sam says, is radical theology compatible with uh, Ricoeur, Kearney's anatheism? Um, yeah, you know, I think so. I, I studied under Ricoeur for a while in Belfast. Uh, when I was doing my PhD, I went down to Dublin and um, uh, you know, did a master's course with him. And he's amazing. And Paul Ricoeur is amazing. Um, they, you know, it's been a long time since I've read them, I'll be honest. But my, my, my concern would be, I think that they would they would distance themselves, I think, from this more psychoanalytic thing. But, uh, but this idea of like, you know, moving away from a more naive idea of God as a being and then a return to God, which is what anatheism, as you know, means, this return to God. But you don't return to God as some kind of like being like us. You return to God in a much more deep um, way. I mean, that, that cycle... Um, is a dialectic cycle. It's a cycle that I that I affirm as well. Um, but yeah, I don't actually know what Carney thinks about this idea of original lack. John Caputo, my mentor, doesn't even kind of like it that much, and um, uh, he's my hero. <laughs> Let's see. Yeah, there's David saying. I always think of radical theology of getting between the cracks of theology. That's a that's a beautiful analogy. Uh, you know. Caputo's analogy is radical theology haunts confessional theology. Um, but yeah, another way of thinking it is radical theology finds the cracks and grooves in the cracks of confessional theology. And um, in that way, they both need each other. You can't have the ghosts in a house if you don't have the house. <laughs> but if you have the house without the ghosts, everything's a bit boring. Um, all right, I have been talking long enough. But you know what? I'll say this. I'm always a bit scared of talking about this. Like yesterday when I was doing this forum on the absurdity um, of Christianity, um, I got the question at the end, which, which is a great question. It was like, you know, how close is this to the mystics? You know, I, I wrote extensively on the mystics and, and my first book was very in the mystical register. Well, and what, what would someone like Thomas Merton think of this? What, you know, because um, in one sense, they're very similar. They're also critiquing, you know, all of our human understandings there. They find the ruptures and the cracks and they love that. They revel in the cracks. They revel in the unraveling of our theology, um, uh, which in the last Facebook Live, I think it was, I talked about how unraveling and raveling means the same thing. To unravel sounds negative, to ravel sounds positive. So they ravel uh, theology. They, they find the positivity of the unraveling, right? And then I'm always scared because I'm like, yeah, I'm really, I'm really close to all of that. I love it. I love the mystics. I love it. I'm reading those people. But, you know, the, the thing I have to say, and I only rarely say it, is I feel like, it's like we as human beings have this really strong fantasy and desire for beneath all of the antagonisms, there is a whole, you know, there's a, a harmony and a oneness that we can access, right? It's not turtles all the way down. Like there's a, there's a point when you get to this, you know, you know, say this oceanic experience and a lot of the mystics, not all of them, but some of the mystics kind of definitely clicked into that. Even Paul Tillich did with his idea of God as ground of being. And I want to say that, yes, the, the difference is radical theology says there is no place where you 
get to the primordial lasting harmony. Because to be you, to be a subject, is to live in and as the lack itself. Um, but that's terrifying to most of us because we want, all of us want, I want, you know, all of us want to think that there is a non-antagonistic harmony. Um, but of course in evolution we see this evolution works partly because there is just vast antagonisms and conflicts. But whenever that's going well, it produces life and beauty and diversity. And when it goes badly, you know, it's um, it can be disastrous. But in the same way, this embrace of antagonism is what actually can make life really enjoyable, really fun and really worth living. And this, this is the figure that Camus calls the rebel. The rebel is the one who embraces the antagonisms of existence. The ultimate rebel is James Dean. You know, what are you rebelling against? What have you got? And that's like life is fun. Life is rebellion and changing things and moving forward. And, um, and you know what? We rest when we're dead. R.I.P. means rest in peace. The peace will happen when there is non-being. But as long as there is being, there will be antagonisms. And the challenge is how do we turn those to good and enjoy them, have a little bit of fun on the way. All right, guys, thank you so much. Keep saying your comments. Keep uh, um, telling me what's going on, what you think. And um, I will check in with you again very soon. See you.